Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 180. In this episode, we're talking about Christianity and conspiracy theories with Mike Austin, Marlena Graves, Drew Johnson, and J. Aaron Simmons. Dr. Mike Austin is professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University and the co-editor of the book that we are discussing today, QAnon, Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories, published by Erdmans. And joining him, we have three of the contributors to the volume, including Dr. Marlena Graves, assistant professor of spiritual formation at Northeastern Seminary, Dr. Drew Johnson, visiting professor of religion at Hope University, and Dr. J. Aaron Simmons, Professor of Philosophy at Furman University. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Austin and the other contributors to the volume uh, about conspiracy theories and thinking about uh, why some people might be drawn to it, how we might engage people uh, who are drawn to it and engaging people in other modes other than facts and about evidence and just thinking in a sophisticated and highly nuanced way about our engagement with people who, who, who might be inclined to hold to conspiratorial ways of thinking. And I just really appreciated what they, uh, what they shared with us. Amber, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation? Well, I loved how multifaceted the volume is. And I think that really came out in our conversation that we, we talked about how to engage people who are waist deep or neck deep, uh, as Mike says, in conspiracy theories. But there's also a lot of reflection on what conspiracy theories are, how to understand them, and also how it is that people get involved in them, uh, particularly white evangelicals, why there's such a pull there, as well as some of the, the intellectual and moral vices, but also virtues that are surrounding that issue. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Mike Austin, Dr. Marlena Graves, Dr. Drew Johnson, and Dr. J. Aaron Simmons. Well, we are very excited to talk about this new book, QAnon, Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories, published by Erdman's. And we're excited to have one of the editors uh, of that volume, Mike Austin, and three of the contributors, uh, J. Aaron Simmons, Marlena Graves, and Drew Johnson. So we're really excited to have this conversation about interest in conspiracy theories, why Christians, some Christians might uh, perhaps be more inclined to conspiracy theories, what what sort of fosters that, uh, and just the nature of kind of navigating like misinformation and things like that uh, online uh, and on social media. So uh, how about we start off, uh, Mike, would you tell us just a bit about the book, how you put it together, and uh, some of the things that um, it, 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 it covers and accomplishes? Yeah, you bet. So it was kind of weird how it came about. I wasn't planning on doing anything about this. And then a friend of mine referred a different publisher to me about just writing an authored book about this. And I thought about it and I was just like, I can't do that. Like, I just don't know enough um, to do that. And I didn't think it would be as helpful. And then my co-editor, Greg Bach, 
has some interest in this. He's used conspiracy theories as like a theme in a critical thinking class, you know, sort of as a way to to teach. And so, and he has people, you know, in his life that like probably a lot of us do that that buy into some or a lot of this kind of stuff. So anyway, the idea behind the book was more less as something you would give to somebody who maybe is knee or waist or neck deep in one of these, although it could be used for that, but it's more as a resource for people who maybe have people in their lives um, or in their churches or, or that are thinking about this stuff or way into it. So it's kind of a resource to help, help you really, I mean, our heart behind it was really to help you continue to have a relationship to love them, but also give some tools to sort of, you know, work with them through some of these questions together. We just started like inviting people that we knew or that we thought would have something good to say from different fields. And so of course our three contributors that are here among the group, but we've got people from philosophy, biblical studies, theology, um, cultural kind of studies, communications, gosh, other people to historian. Um, so I think that's good um, because it, it kind of gave people a different lens. And so we could each bring a little slice of our own area of expertise to this stuff. And I think that gives makes it a richer and maybe a more valuable resource. And the nice thing too, is you don't have to start, you know, cover to from start to finish. You can jump in in any chapter that you think, well, this is really relevant to me. I want to start here. One of the things I, I really liked about the book was how you answer the questions, what, like, what are conspiracy theories? Uh, why, like, why do people fall into them, particularly Christians? And then how do we engage relationally with them? And so I'm wondering, based on each of your different chapters, um, how, how did you approach the, the what, the why, and the how? I guess I'll talk. My husband, Sean Graves, who's a philosopher, and I'm a American culture a social historian um, and spiritual formation. Uh, I'm a spiritual formation professor. And we thought kind of about the why. One of the things, not the only thing, because of course there's complex reasons, but the alienation in our culture and the fractured uh, community, the loneliness, the epidemic of loneliness, uh, especially coming out of uh, COVID-19 lockdown, that that just uh, fueled whatever loneliness that many people felt, except for maybe introverts who are happy. But uh, a lot of people did struggle uh, with loneliness during uh, the lockdown here in the United States is where I'm coming from. It just brought to fore many, I think, uh, cultural issues, good, bad, and uh, also conditions in the church. And um, I talked about, we talked about how, you know, in during the industrial revolution, people fled their rural homes and their rural communities to find work in the cities, but also to get away from everyone knowing their business because um, they just wanted to be anonymous in some ways. Uh, so if they wanted to, I guess, carouse, if they wanted to in big cities, um, they wouldn't cause a scandal in rural towns. Um, and so people like the anonymity of the city and leaving their roots. And there were many reasons why, yeah, economic, social, political, et cetera. But part of the problem is that we become so anonymous, you know, QAnon, you know, this conspiracy it even has a name in it, anonymous, you know, QAnon, um, that it has broken down our social ties 
And with the church and the American church going through everything it's going to, I should say the evan white evangelical church, um, communities breaking down. And so being in QAnon gives people a community, uh, things that they can, they have the conversation that links them together, social, cultural, political, religious, um, they might feel like they're in the war and you, you've heard that people that are in warfare together, you know, oh, in the trenches together, there's a kind of bond. And so we came up, we came at it from the why aspect. And part of it, we think is the uh, social and religious isolation and the fracturing of the American social fabric. Um, and so people find somewhere to belong somewhere to belong, you know, in a, a QAnon group and uh, something to live for. And so ideally for Christians, it would be following Christ and the gospel. But some of these people who claim to be Christians believe they're fighting for the gospel. So if uh, Marlena addresses the why, um, my co-author Kevin Carnahan and I really focused more on the what, uh, or maybe a better way to put it is the who. It's like, what what is this conspiracy um, move? We call it conspiracism as the actual social phenomenon. And we focus in particular on white evangelical Christians in America. Um, and, you know, we started off with a lovely academic title. I think it was something like, you know, social conspiracism and evangelical Christianity or something. Uh, it ended up, our chapter was titled, It's Much Worse Than You Think, because as we dug into this, um, Kevin and I both really, I think, not lost hope, but lost even more hope uh, for Mike's beautiful vision of how to engage. Um, and I should note, uh, for listeners who are interested, so my co-author uh, is, is Methodist, I'm a Pentecostal, so we're both very familiar with white evangelicalism in America in different different stripes and ways. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we argued that white evangelical conspiracism is a particular form of conspiracism that we name drawing from the social sciences as a social form, as opposed to psychological, which is be like, you know, your lone wolf conspiracy theory, you tin hat wearing person. Uh, or the cultic conspiracy theory person, which would be um, conspiracist because of location in a very authority-driven culture where there is, you know, one epistemic leader who dictates what is the case, and therefore the conspiracy theory runs out of the listening to that leader. We suggest that evangelicals in America in particular are social in that they are not so much listening to you know the one strong leader as they are part of a community who has defined itself against everything that it sees as a threat to its coherence. And um, we actually argue that this perceived threat that then motivates some of the worry and circling of the wagons actually is true, not the conspiracy theories, but the threat to their uh, identity, because lots of, not all, but lots of the folks who are most prominently engaged in such social conspiracism are 
invested in what we argue are biblically horrifying and theologically bankrupt and morally um, vile sets of commitments. And so they should be socially shunned and ostracized and excluded from public discourse because what they're presenting as viable simply is not for reasonable, well-intentioned people who care about relational democracy. And so that you know, social pressure that should create a sort of um, external sanction, as John Stuart Mill would suggest, to bring them back into the fold and kind of have to rethink their beliefs. They don't have to do this precisely because the social structure works in order to reinforce their status and privilege and location and power within the community by being even more extreme in their refusal to engage with those with whom they disagree. And so if the psychological conspiracist is engaging in a kind of epistemology of irrationality, right? They aren't making good entailments. They're entirely just believing crazy things without any coherence or connection to, you know, sound premises, et cetera. And the cultic is engaged in a kind of epistemology of insularity where it's, you know, close it all down. Here we are. Listen to the one leader. Everybody else is fake. The social conspiracist, and in our case, evangelical social conspiracist, is engaged in what we call an epistemology of ignorance, where in fact, the ignorance of the broader context and biblical studies like you know, Drew does and spiritual formation like Marlene is doing and cultural philosophy like Mike's up to, none of this is part of their epistemic wheelhouse. This is perceived as necessarily out of bounds and dangerous so long as it calls them to critical engagement. And so our ultimate suggestion, this is why it's worse than we, than we think, is it leads to what we call a Teflon hermeneutics, where any objection, any criticism just slides right off. And so there is absolutely no ability within the actual epistemic training of participating in these white evangelical communities, there's really not any hope that this turns around because precisely what they are doing in order to make themselves who they are even more prominently makes them even less likely to engage in deliberative democratic practices that would allow for the hope that uh, Mike you know, articulates. So, I, I would love to say that I uh, remain hopeful, but I really don't. Um, I do, and this is important, I do still attend an Assemblies of God church, right? So when I'm saying I'm not hopeful, this doesn't mean that, you know, we should just walk away and lock the doors and abandon ship. There are still lots of people with whom I interact in lots of other ways in my communities of faith that I think are you know, morally upright and compelling members of society. But then when it comes to these spaces where conspiracy theory has kind of gotten hold, that's where I just, ah, man, like, I don't know. I, I now tend to think in light of the work of uh, political philosopher Rob Talese, maybe the best hope is just to like play more softball in church leagues. And maybe the real engagement that is transformative is just not going to be arguments because, again, the epistemology of ignorance refuses <laughs> that arguments are going to be successful. 
And so maybe if we just play softball or go bowling or have, you know, pizza and ice cream nights or something like maybe just the relational engagement in non-political or non-social um, conversational ways creates a different mode of relational interaction that possibly uh, leads to some sort of transformation in a long-term way. But um, yeah, I, I think it's pretty bad. And for what it's worth, I think many white evangelicals engaging in this sort of conspiracism are a deep danger to uh, a flourishing democracy. And in that way, I do think that um, finding ways to fight that rather than finding ways to engage with it is ultimately going to be the only way forward, again, or we play softball. So this is really really interesting, Aaron, because I, I, I want to ask a follow-up question about your claim that maybe we should just play softball or go bowling uh, because of that Teflon hermeneutic that arguments are just not going to really help at this point, but maybe relationships will. And I think that's kind of a theme in, in the book more generally. Um, but I'm wondering, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is how American culture compared to other cultures is very different because other cultures you know, like to be Italian, for example, is largely about how you cook your pasta and how you eat dinner together and how long you age the cheese and the wine and that sort of thing. Danish culture, very similar. Uh, American culture is, it's about ideas. Like we don't have that same kind of cultural fabric that other places do. It's, it's all about ideas. We founded like the, you know, the U S government was founded on like very ideological basis. And so it's sort of like American culture, turns everything into ideology. Um, and, and so our cultural groups tend to be these ideological, ideologically based groups. And so that might be one of the reasons why conspiracy theories can really flourish in, in our particular context. And so it seems to me that your relational um, recommendation is actually pushing against that tendency to find your community on the basis of your ideology. Um, would you say that's true? And, and do you think that that's do you think that will get traction in, in our context? Yeah, I mean, I, I will defer to my colleagues on sort of what this looks like in um, theologically sophisticated ways. But as a philosopher, my, my, my view on this is it's, it's always weird to think that um, the belief that P, whatever P might be, right, to believe that P is sufficient for how you now group, how you identify, how you navigate, how you associate, right? Like that's actually a really weird move if we think about the uh, embodied lives that we actually live, right? And it it's not that, that belief doesn't matter. Um, there's really good data that comes out of uh, World War II actually that talks about the fact that there's two conflicting theories about why, you know, someone would help, say, you know, a Jewish family or, you know, try to offer support even at risk to themselves. And one view is this because they believed in the dignity of all humanity and they saw them as neighbors. The other view says, no, it's because, you know, their kids played soccer together down the street. And it's like, man, like, I hate for them to you know, get killed. So you end up with this, you know, dichotomy. I think it's probably both, right? The the more that we play soccer with people who don't look like us and don't believe like us and you know don't eat like us, probably we'll begin to realize that those beliefs and habits and practices and food 
may not be immediately uh, a sign of irrationality or immorality, right? And so that's my thought is it's not so much that you transform, um, you know, their beliefs, it's that you make it harder for the ease with which the irrational and immoral get deployed as epistemic starting points. And for what it's worth, um, though it is a flaw in American society to always think of things in terms of two sides, right, right and left, it's always more complicated. But I will say the left is similarly bad at this kind of ease of epistemic assumptions, right? So somebody who might have a complicated or nuanced view on reproductive rights or, you know, race in college admissions, which the Supreme Court just got rid of today, right? I, I might support reproductive rights, and I might support race as a factor in college admissions. And yet I can also recognize there are complicated views that really smart, well-intentioned, good people might hold. And I actually want to know their views on this stuff, right? But my thought is I'm more likely to engage with them in responsible ways if I'm not starting into the conversation thinking that they're just, you know, beyond the pale. So I think this is something where all of us probably can get better at it. Um, but I do think the epistemic flaws within social conspiracism are such that it makes the idea of engaging with good critical thinking and reasoned discourse, that I just think is increasingly unlikely to be successful. Um, you know, so let's watch movies and, and talk about music. And it, it turns out like I mountain bike a lot. And so I have lots of friends I meet mountain biking who I don't have any clue where they stand politically. I have no idea if they believe P or, you know, not P. I have no idea. I just know that, they, wow, they can freaking shred on that downhill, right? And that's enough for now. Now, as we continue to ride more and become closer and get to spend more time with each other, we grab lunch afterwards, then some of the other stuff starts showing up in the natural course of conversation. But now, any of those conversations, it's not that we're now entering to change each other's minds. We're actually now trying to just get to know each other because we've already got some point of what I would call liturgical enactment that makes a similarity front and center. And then the differences and disagreements are something that we can handle on the backside, right? So I don't know if that's an answer, but it, it's, it's what keeps me, um, to be honest, it's what keeps me going to church, right? Because if I had to say, oh, I go to church because I love what they preach, I would stop going. So it has to be something else that is drawing me to that space. And I think it's important to still be there. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of after Wednesday night youth group saying, hey, son, so now let's kind of, you know, challenge some of the theology that you were just handed. But wasn't that cool playing basketball after service, right? Don't you want to play drums next week? Like, that's where I'm leaning hard in the hope that then there's some, you know, future that maybe looks different. Just your question, Amber, about culture. I agree with Aaron about the soccer. I actually think that's the way. And I'm sure maybe I don't want to actually, I don't want to speak for Mike or Drew, but I do think that's extremely important. But I just want to be careful when we say American culture, because there's a lot of American cultures. And that's just because my study is American culture and inequity and inequality. But um, I just, I think that it is a, kind of a more of a Western white phenomenon 
and I think it's a form of Gnosticism, right? You separate your ideas from the rest of your life or you, 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 you know, differentiate this. And this is what I mean. For example, there's people in American culture, let's say uh, Indians, um, uh, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, other people, uh, people from Korea, that when their children go to college, or especially Mexicans, or, or I should say like Latino, Hispanic, their whole family moves with the child. It's a whole family unit. It's not the child, oh, not everyone, but there are people that do. It's not just the child going to college. It's a whole family deal. So there's a lot of, um, I only say that because there's a reason that Aaron and others have, and others of us have noted it's white evangelicals. This conspiracy theory is um, flourishing and other theories among white evangelicals is I think part of it's a different difference in culture, 100%. Um, and I was, a way, epistemology, ways of knowing, you know, like you pointed out, like our ways of knowing are often just, you know, informational and words and ideas. And I also think that we talked about the isolation, but that lack of being tied to something, a family or something bigger than yourself, you know, the myth of American individualism that you could do it by yourself is really strong in some church quarters. And um, I think that all kind of contributes for it to be a particularly salient problem among white evangelicals. I'm not gonna say just white evangelicals, because we know that's not true, but among white evangelicals. So thank you. It's funny that you interjected that particular comment, because I was just going to say, um, I, I don't live in a white, I'm the only white guy in my community, in my churches. Uh, and so the whole reason I got into this, I wrote an article, which I think um, Mike saw and then got, I uh, rewrote it for this book uh, is because I'm in Latino churches and black churches. And I was running into conspiracies left and right from the black and Latino that I associated with white evangelicals. Uh, and I was kind of shocked that all of these black people believe that I'm like, how could you believe these things? You know, um, you're better than this kind of that uh, thinking, like I expect this from my, my white neighbor, but not from you. Right. And I think that, you know, I, I would like to say my the original question, I think I'm a little more on the how side. Uh, how should we then go about thinking about conspiracy theories from a biblical? I, you know, I try to I'm a one trick pony, so I just try to resource everything from a biblical point of view as much as that word biblical means. Um, and I want to say, like, we should be conspiracy minded. That's that's what scripture teaches is we absolutely from the Torah to the prophets are saying there are powers that are exploiting and uh, having a negative impact and they're pulling invisible levers to make things happen the way they want you to, right? The way they want them to happen. And you all need to take account for all of those kinds of perversely incentivized powers and positions that do all of these horrible things that we see in the world, right? Uh, the subtle and the, and the extreme. Uh, the problem is we have atrophied or, you know, we're wearing, we're all wearing Hoka tennis shoes when we should be wearing barefoot or something, you know, we can't feel the road under our feet um, because we have so much padding and everything's black and white and everything's this or that, or, you know, I'm, there's great, there's some very fantastic analysis in this book on what exactly is going on there. I think in the black church in particular, they have the advantage of knowing from the get-go that, you know, the American society projects itself one way, but they experience it a very different way. So like the conspiracy mindset is not like the, the truth of the conspiracy 
is not hidden from uh, most of them, most but not all of them, of course. Um, I like to say that uh, my stepfather, who is African-American, raised under Jim Crow in, in the South and in the 40s and 50s, uh, you know, I used to ride, he used to give me rides places when I was a teenager. So in Oklahoma in the 1980s, we got pulled over, you know, what's a 40 year old black man doing with a 14 year old white boy, right? Um, and I saw how police officers treated and talked to him, uh, a respectable, hardworking man, uh, before there was a cell phone to record it, right? So so I think this conspiracy mindset, I don't, I don't want to poop on it too much here, right? <laughs> I want to say like, there's what we actually, actually need to do is sharpen and, and attune our conspiracy thinking to what scripture points us at. And I use Jesus as the kind of the interpreter par excellence, where when confronted with the idea of conspiracies about his death and his coming, and all, he said, he doesn't say like, look, here's the skinny, here's what's really going to happen. He just says, don't listen to any of that junk, right? Uh, I say he goes into kind of that Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet model of people are going to say they know, but they don't know, right? Um and instead, he sets them to, I think this is where Aaron was going, a particular task of a community that they're supposed to be like um, that can buffer and uh, buffet for and avoid uh, the kinds of conspiracy that will naturally emerge. I, I will also say, I don't know if I said it in my my chapter or not, but uh, I used to work in covert operations, counter narcotics in South America in the 90s, and it's nearly impossible <laughs> For me to believe, seeing how the government actually works and seeing how many miracles have to happen for a plane to land anywhere and not break down uh, and how many like the, the idea of this pan governmental pan agency conspiracy thing, like it's absurd on several levels. Uh, but uh, that's just more the logistical side of me. Like, I, yeah, I would I would love to see you try and pull that off in uh, cross government agency planning. So that's something that I find so bizarre is like people who are conspiratorial often rail about the incompetence of the government. And yet at the same time, they have this idea that the government is like hyper uh, uh, efficient at like doing all these nefarious things and like collaborating internationally. And uh, anyways, it's, it's a which, remarkable, which we should paradox. say it's not true. The government is actually not good at those in case people thought that they were, I think though, not to make this a big push for the humanities, or I just say like biblical imagination, it really is an underdeveloped imagination, right? Cause you say like, okay, walk me through it. How would that conspiracy work? Right. And they say, well, you know, they, they, they would get there like, well, who are the they? How much money do they make? Where do they live? How do they get time off to go do this? Right. Uh, and they're just not thinking it through. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, when pe pe it's people who basically, you know, for better or worse, they don't understand how organizations work. Right. They don't understand, you know, the economics, the logistics, et cetera. So uh, I feel like developing more robust imaginations and um, a, a little bit experience, not just playing softball with, um, you know, religiously or conspiracy, but also like people just don't know scientists. They don't know what scientists do. They don't know what engineers do or engineers only know what they do, but they don't know what anybody else does. So just kind of, I don't know. I feel like there should be a place like a universe of discourse where people could come and learn these things from one another. I don't know, it's, it's crazy. That's my dream. That is my dream to get people that disagree, come together to have a civil conversation. So so, Drew, I, I find what you're saying fascinating. Um, I would just wonder, maybe 
a language shift that I find helpful is a differentiation between a hermeneutics of suspicion, which we postmodern philosophers find very compelling, right, versus a, you might say, kind of conspiratorial hermeneutics. And the reason that it seems like those are importantly different is because um, the hermeneutics of suspicion says it's because we're committed to publicly shareable evidence that we recognize the way this is being narrated if we, in fact, develop and dig and are critically engaged and humble enough. I know Mike's writing a book on humility currently. Like if we are humble enough to think about what we probably are missing, we are likely to see things that otherwise the power structures would have deceived us in their interest, right? Whereas conspiratorial hermeneutics seems to, from the outset, say, we're the only ones who get it. We're the epistemically privileged. We are uninterested in evidence that challenges this because that's precisely what they want you to see. So you end up with a confusion between those who are propagandizing and poisoning the epistemic well, right, as conspiratorial, versus those who are actually trying to dig deeper in the well to understand how it is that evidence really functions. So I'm just wondering is is a hermeneutics of suspicion maybe the better name for something like this biblical model that you are advocating? Because it does seem to me that there can be a slippage where it sounds like we're sort of justifying something that I think is epistemically not just disastrous, but morally repugnant. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, are we are we going to win back the word conspiracy at this point? Probably not. Uh, and you said it's like, uh, hermeneutic Teflon, like this is what with students, I'm always like, no, you seem to have an indefeasible belief here. This That's going to be problematic. I don't think it's Teflon, though. I think the better metaphor is maybe origami or something, because whatever you say folds in, right? It uh, it becomes part, you know, well, that's what the Germans want you to think, or you're drinking, I see you're one of the sheeple drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, so I, I think it's not just that it slides off, but that it actually strengthens and reinforces the indefeasibility of the belief that becomes problematic. I'm I'm reticent to let go of it because I, I hermeneutics of suspicion does some work. I think what we're just talking about analogical reasoning at this point, but the conspiracy analogy does a bit more because I think it makes more points of contact because it really does have Hermetic of suspicion is still me, the rational agent, being suspicious of something out there. It's playing into a game that um, is good but not great. Uh, conspiracy is uh, brings all the power structures, brings the invisible networks, the uh, social network. So we're not. So we need another word, maybe a third word here that we can work out. But yeah, I would be more in favor of what you what you said there. Yeah. Well, and I, I think another important difference between the two is uh, conspiratorial thinking or. Uh, uh, hermeneutics of paranoia is uh, it's already decided the answer from the outset. It's already decided what it can possibly find. <laughs> Whereas hermeneutics of suspicion is genuinely inquiring, in, inquiring beneath the surface in order to see what's there, like digging deeper in the well, like Aaron said. Whereas what's what's so dangerous about conspiracy theories is you've, you're just simply trying to confirm the narrative that you have already created. And that's the entire purpose of your inquiry. And we, we haven't addressed yet. I mean, we've addressed a little bit, but the rituals, I'm a two trick pony. Everything's about rituals uh, as well, but the, you know, the rituals of media consumption, like you talk to people, it was a flat earther at my Brazilian church 
who who was like, no, I'm I'm biblical flat Earth. Like the biblical authors believed in a flat Earth. I do too. Presto, you know. And I was like, where did you come up with this? And the answer is always the same. YouTube, right? Like how many hours are you watching YouTube? And I I like to give the example that my grandfather, um, maybe his memory be blessed, you know, would watch the CBS evening news every night and read the big thick Sunday morning, Saturday or uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And that was his like interaction with the wider world. Uh, He was not listening to three hours of Rush Limbaugh every day. Uh, He was not, you know, on YouTube for hours uh, guessing like, you've heard this. Well, guess what? They're all wrong. You know, Um, that ritual habituation of I I can't even justify it by calling it data, but of propaganda um, has a like a materially embodied different impact on us than all the kinds of forms of media interaction we've had up until the last few years or last 20 years, at least. But Mike, so do you think then, in light of your book on gods and God and guns, uh, what Amber is saying, like, so Amber's definitional account of a hermeneutics of paranoia, it where where we're basically you know prima facie from the outset deciding the limits of where our inquiry can go, right? So dig, do your own research, as we say, but only if you land here is it going to be acceptable by the community in which you find yourself. One of the things that I find so fascinating about that definition is um, a for the uh, what phenomenological nerds listening, that's Heidegger's definition of theology, and b for all of us navigating a broadly American cultures. Uh, thanks, Marlena. It, it sounds to me like what Amber's describing is simply the way an awful lot of religious thinking happens in our society, right? Where it's, I'm just thinking of all the sermons that I have heard growing up about whatever topic, right? It doesn't have to be political. It could just be about, you know, my goodness, it could be about how we make sense of the point of our lives or how we find the person we're going to spend our life with or God's sovereignty and how whatever happens, God's in control. Like it can be this theological patina for really just a hermeneutics of paranoia such that it's not so much that it's the um, conspiracism that's the problem. And here again, I am out of the Assemblies of God Church. My grandfather was a Church of God pastor. I identify as a Pentecostal and try to live like Christ. I wonder if the real problem is just the way we do religion, right? And this is something I think that your book on God and Guns raised for me was these questions about, shoot, it's not so much that here's a bunch of folk that want to carry their guns and so they go to church. It's they go to church and therefore carry these guns. Like it ends up being a theological or religious practice justification for a particular mode of landing in a certain spot rather than another. Right. So walk me off of this cliff, Mike. What, why is it that the real worry is not just theology and religion from the outset? Yeah, that's a good question, as people like to say on podcasts, right? Um, I think, yeah, I think for me, it's those big questions in life, we have to have some kind of, even if it's by default, some kind of framework. So they're going to be, I don't want to call them givens. But for me, look, I mean, what am I 54? There are certain things I believe, and it's hard, really hard for me to imagine ever changing my mind. Like, I mean, certain Christian beliefs I have, I can't imagine changing my mind about some of those. Now, some, you know, hold much more loosely. And actually, 
I mean, I've been reflecting on this now that I'm in my fifties and, you know, closer to death than birth probably. Um, unless like, but I actually, I think I have a lot more beliefs now than 10 or 20 years ago, but I have a lot fewer convictions that go all the way down. But the ones that I have, I mean, like that God is love and that I'm supposed to, you know, love God, love my neighbor as my, like those things. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine ever changing my mind about, but I think, I think, I guess what I would say is the problem is we kind of, whether it's interdenominational arguments or whether it's this kind of stuff, we, we try to sort of, in scare quotes, baptize a bunch of other stuff as part, as non-negotiable as being the hill to die on. And so, yeah, I mean, but you have that experience with whether I've talked to people about guns or people with about conspiracy theories or, I mean, it's, or about Trump, you know, as much as I thought we were done with this, we're not, right? Where it's just like a, it's, yeah, it, the Teflon analogy or the other ones are apt. And so I guess what I want to say is part of it is about belief. It's about truth claims, right? Um, but I'm probably not going to have a good discussion with somebody on Twitter or on Facebook or someone I don't really know that well, even a student, especially maybe later in the semester compared to early in the semester or later in their career compared to early when they know and trust me. But I want to kind of, I mean, I go, I'll go with the Teflon and um, analogy. I want to scrape away at that Teflon with like the metal utensil and just like, and I think that's done through cultivating love and trust, which is going to be done playing soccer together, hanging out and watching your kid, you know, so the people at my church had a conversation, gosh, it's been two years ago now um, about this. And, and I, when the book was being still being put together and like, well, you kind of pro conspiracy theory or anti, you know, of course it's gotta be one or the other. I'm like, well, you know, it's more critical and I could see sort of the, the affect was a little bit disappointment, but I know if I know like that person, if we had a conversation now, two years later, they would engage and they would, because they trust me, um, we could we could make some progress together. So, yeah, I think this has already been said. I think it's a both and kind of thing. It's the relationship. It's the love. It's the side by side stuff. But man, some of this is about ideas. And so I think you're right that there's this habit, not in all religion, in white evangelical spaces of like, and I remember this, I mean, I became an evangelical without knowing that's what I was doing when I was a senior in high school. Um, that it's kind of i still remember this from college and sometimes like well there's like there's this guy they're an evangelical so they're okay right now you're that guy's still a christian but he's kind of off on this that or the other thing right and i think that sort of approach certain certain things just make you out of bounds or within the limits i mean there have to be some limits to have just have beliefs about the world but i think the problem is yeah i guess i'm repeating myself this stuff it just gets expanded to where it takes on you know the gun culture or you know, there's to the, you know, most people aren't the extreme of like, there are lizard people out there, but, but a lot of people, white evangelicals are most likely than anybody else, at least the Republican ones to believe that the election was stolen, right from Trump. And so that's a big problem, epistemic and moral. Um, and so yeah, I am concerned that the way we do church and theology often in that part of American church feeds into this. But I think we can still have firm theological and religious convictions without doing it that way. At least I hope so. And look, I'm going to say this because I just feel like it and we've already touched on it. I'm kind of, you know, evangelical came about because fundamentalists didn't work anymore. And just like maybe we can't win back conspiracy theories, we can't win back the term evangelical. So if somebody presses me, I'll say I'm a classical evangelical because I just want to avoid all that stuff. I don't 
care about the, I mean, it's kind of weird for me to say, I suppose, <laughs> but I don't really care about the word, right? I care about what it used to signify. And, and so I hope, I mean, I've said this for several years. I think I probably agree with you, Aaron, in the sense that there's not much hope. So they, either there's going to be like this massive sort of spiritual and moral renewal within white evangelicalism broadly conceived, or it's just going to die. And if that's one of the other should happen. And I'm, I mean, I guess I'm not fine with either, but I don't want it to keep going like this in the direction it is. And that, that there's been threads from the beginning, I think historians have shown. So, so my hope is broader in the Christian church and that this can help people. Yeah. When, whatever it gets called, I'm going to keep that vision um, of faith, hope, love, the beloved community as uh, people talk about. So, yeah, and this is my, I keep getting put, I don't want to talk about controversial stuff. Like I prefer the positive vision, you know, the book on humility is like, man, this is the way of Christ, humility, love, let's do that. But these are the things that are chipping away at that. And so I think we have to kind of do both the critical and the constructive work. All right. Philosophy sermon over. <laughs> I wrote an article uh, a bunch of years ago. It was actually for an online blog um for seminary students i had gotten so frustrated by um a long story without any context is i had been asked to leave a variety of churches all within a very short time frame um and in every single case the phenomenon had been i was trying to get involved my family was getting involved but you know we we ask critical questions and we do say oh so you believe that p that's interesting i wonder what you know does that didn't mean this and in every case, I was told that I was challenging basically the authority of the ecclesial structure and don't touch God's anointed and on and on and on. And so I wrote this article precisely to say, uh, dear pastors, here are things I wish you knew about academics. Right. And the whole idea was to say, A, we don't want your effing jobs. Right. Like none of us are trying to lead your church. Like That's just not what those of us at universities are out to do. B, we're not trying to make you look stupid. If anything, we're trying to make you look way better than you currently do every time you speak. Like the whole thought of it was actually this attempt to say, if you would actually not be so scared of people who ask questions in the humanities in this space in particular, right? Though the scientists, you know, also have their same uh, issues. They just, they're just better at keeping quiet in churches, I think. <laughs> and, uh, and I wouldn't want anybody to think that my suggestion, hey, let's just play softball. I realize that can be almost um, patronizingly dismissive to the real danger and threat and harm that is being caused by these conspiracy theories that are actually changing the fabric of our society, especially for historical, uh, historically marginalized communities, right? So <clears throat> what I'm suggesting is not, hey, play softball, whatever. It's the kind of thing that, you know, white wealthy people can do. It's exactly the opposite recommendation. It's to say, I genuinely think the only hope we have for any conversation is to have a different mode of embodied relationality, right? That we have seen repeatedly modeled in social justice movements throughout history, where, you know, it's by knowing people who are different and knowing people who look different, knowing people who cook different, knowing people who believe different. It's doing things that are the same, like, you know, ironically, Marlena, staying at home, right? And being frustrated and being isolated that's a huge uh, moment of solidarity across the human condition, 
right? And so it's by finding ways for those embodied practices to create that solidarity that then I think we must find ways to then actually continue to do the work of justice while humbly before our God, right? Like th there is no way to say, hey, let's just play softball because, eh, oh, well, it's, it's not resignation. It's actually a kind of, we might say like subversive activism, right? Join the church softball league, even if you don't believe in what they're spouting, because you know what? You'll all agree about what counts as a home run. Like you want to talk about an epistemically bounded community where evidence is clear? There it is, right? So now you're actually doing the kind of things that we do in our classrooms, but you're doing it in spaces where it might be a little bit more, um, you know, unintimidating. One of the threads in the book that I noticed is you guys talk a lot about um, different vices that, or at least many of your contributors, uh, talk about different vices, both uh, intellectual and moral, that make us prone or to conspiracy theories. Um, but then you also talk about different virtues that are good to cultivate that you see exemplified in certain communities that actually create buffers um, and, and modes of protection against against falling prey to these kinds of things. And so I'm wondering if if you, we could talk a little bit about that. What are, what are some of those things that we need to focus on cultivating it? And I think in our civil discourse, be aiming for. I, I think one of the things um, I'll throw out the only thing I have to say on this, but um, is that I think we're often underestimating. Uh, if I could rewrite Augustine's little phrase, uh, our hearts are epistemically restless until we find our rest in thee. Uh, and so I think that need for certainty. I mean, if you thought, I think about the emotional need that goes, you know, this kind of like emotions and rationality are two separate functions. I'm just sick of that whole discourse. And it's been pretty clearly evidenced to be not true. Um, but the fact that, and this is where we don't have to talk about white people anymore. We can talk about men in particular, but uh, it does, it, this is empirically true. Men seem to have a need to be right more than women do, right? I, now, I don't know what all is behind all of that. We can take some stabs. But um, at the end of the day, when I talk to people who like are deep into the conspiracy theories, what I actually am seeing is a deep emotional need to have an anchor and concrete that will not be moved. And they've seen it. And they know what's going on. They've had the religious conversion where they didn't see it before. They heard somebody on YouTube and now they see it. And that feels more than good. It feels necessary for them. And so I think it's a disservice to those people to treat it as if it's merely a rational problem that can be talked out. They can, they can be talked out of or that they're foolish and petty for believing those things. Yeah, and that's where I would say humility comes into play. So, of course, I, I mean, that's what my chapter focuses on. But there's the humility, you know, of maybe someone who's tempted or is buying into one or more of these theories that and I mentioned this, that one good question to ask is, well, do all these conspiracy theories kind of line up with what I already believe about politics, right? Did all the conspiracies happen to support Trump or, you know, vice versa, whatever it is. But then I think what Drew just said made me think of this too. It's for someone like me who tends to be much more skeptical of you know, QAnon and the, that brand of conspiracy theory is, well, I need to be humble. So it's not like that guy next to me in church, he believes in QAnon, what an idiot, you know? And I mean, 
that's just, that's terrible, right? It's supposed to be my, you know, sibling in Christ. And so I should engage him humbly. I should be open because, you know, conspiracies happen. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong, you know? I mean, that's <laughs> another hard thing for men, I believe empirically, right? The correlate is admitting you're wrong, or you could be wrong, right? Because it undermines that concrete, that need. Um, so for, for, so Greg and I, the co-editor, it was just like, we, that's a way to engage in, in humility. And that sets the stage for love, right? To foster a loving relationship. And that's what make, and then the ideas can come and they can be more fruitful. But yeah, if you're just going to belittle others, you, you know, don't engage them, right? You're just going to do more harm than good to your relationship and, and to yourself and them. Um, so yeah, those, those thoughts jumped to mind for me. And then, yeah, it, I mean, we really are supposed to like, love our neighbors ourselves, and so we can't just keep playing the same game that's just gotten worse the past six or seven years of just the you know the ad hoc and the attacking the person or the belittling or the you know the rhetorical violence all that stuff um so we can engage people asking questions and honest questions not the leading ones that you learn as an evangelical to get to someone where you can talk to them about jesus but just actually caring about them as human beings and trying to Trying to look at this comes from Dallas Willard, you know. So a lot of my, I think the way I've been formed over the years, intellectually and spiritually, through his writings and through people who were his students, is just instead of face to face opponents with that conspiracy theory believing person in your family or um, church or neighbor, or whatever is, if you you have to do it for real, not just pretend and play acting, but for real, say okay, let's get shoulder to shoulder, try to look at this stuff together in the context of our relationship you know, all that other stuff we have in common. And if it's another Christ follower, right, you've got that in common. Let's try to figure out what's true together. So tell me the best, what's, why do you believe this? Give me some kind of your, what led you to come to believe this stuff and I'll think about it. And then, you know, mutuality, I'll give you some things to think about and we can talk about it. But none of that, I think the problem is we start there. And I think it's come out of this discussion is a lot of the work (laughs) that matters is 10 steps before that. Um, and then it's also if you're if it's a family member or a neighbor or a church, someone at your church, you you if you don't agree that then you just agree to disagree and maybe you could still like love each other and focus on the stuff you have in common anyway. So and those though all those virtues right there's a ton of virtues in all that humility, love, faith, patience, forgiveness, bearing with each other, compassion, all that stuff. So it's really demanding, um, but that's what we're imperfectly trying to stumble towards. I think what they all said, and maybe I would just put it this way. I, I would say a loving anchored presence in your local place. So humility. So for example, um, I really love the phrase that we talked about. You earn the right to be heard. Does the person that I'm engaging with at my church, you know, local person, um, do they know that I love them when they, when I look at them, do they see God's delight or do they see contempt or somehow that I'm pride, prideful or that I think I'm better than them? Um, and I think this uh, um, piggybacking on uh, Mike's virtue of humility is I try to think even if someone comes after me on Twitter, but, or, uh, you know, I'm like, what can I learn from this person? There's obviously something they don't know or something, whether it's a virtue, a skill, whatever it is that I can learn from them. Like, and I think that keeps me like, okay, I have this to offer to the world, but what do they have to offer? It's not just their belief in a conspiracy theory. Like they're more than their belief in a conspiracy theory. Um, 
And I think, but that only comes as if we are present and anchored um, in real time right now, you know, um, together. And that does require, so I'm gonna come up with a practice, um, Amber and John that I'm trying to do is I have to eliminate all the good things that are getting away of the best. Because there are a lot of things pulling me away from my local, you know, contexts that I could be doing as a professor, as a writer, speaker, whatever. But I don't want to go out if I'm not living it right here with those closest to me. I would just add um, humility um, leads necessarily for me to hospitality, which is maybe a way of articulating what Marlene is, um, you know, saying we should embody. And for me, this is something kind of shows up a lot in my thinking. Um, I actually just uh, finished writing a book um, where I argue that really the core three virtues for contemporary life um, are humility, hospitality, and gratitude. And so the way I think that we can be grateful for the communities in which we find ourselves is if they are spaces where humility, of course, becomes our epistemic mode, but then hospitality becomes our you know, kind of moral um, invitation. And so here it makes me think of Soren Kierkegaard has this whole series of communion discourses where uh, all of them are reflections in one way or another on the idea of the scripture that says, you know, come all who are heavy burdened, right? All who are weary. And uh, I wrote an essay a few years ago talking about the, we don't emphasize the all, <laughs> right? Because we're, we're almost always interested in expanding, but we're usually wanting to expand just enough to make ourselves feel like we weren't the isolated, insular, you know, uh, in a very technical sense by Aaron James, we're not the assholes in the, the room. But instead, what we see scripturally, uh, which Drew, of course, you know, has argued lots on this, we see all like the, the limitation is not in play. It's always at some level going to be a failure of radical hospitality. Um, and I'm also struck by the way that uh, Jacques Derrida says that the practice of deconstruction is summarized entirely with the words, yes, come, come, <laughs> right? Like, come all. And the answer is not come all if, come all, but it's yes, right? And the affirmation does not mean I affirm the beliefs you hold that I find detrimental to public life. It's not that I affirm everything that you do with the guns that you want to open carry through public schools, right? Like there's lots of things that I'm going to say no to, but the saying no is never a saying no to the personhood and dignity and, you know, uh, God-bearing image of that person, right? And so that's where uh, I think hospitality um, is something we don't see a lot of right now in broader ways, right? In politics, obviously, our immigration policy does not smack of a country defined by hospitality. Um, our um, lack of political debate, like it's horrifying to me, even as somebody on the left side of the spectrum, that we're just not going to have presidential primary debates, because we need to rally behind where we're supposed to all line up. Like, no, hospitality says, hey, even though I'm in power and I'd love to keep this, I want to open space to then hear the views from people who think I'm doing this wrong, right? That's not what we see from our leaders, whatever side we fall on. 
Um, we certainly don't see you know, Trump saying, hey, I might be wrong. Y'all help me think this through. You know, but we also don't see that from pastors very often. We definitely don't see it largely from men who think that success in the marketplace is to be a better asshole than all the other assholes, right? And this is going to make me get ahead and say, hey, don't don't hate the play, I hate the game. And of course, response would be, well, play a different game then, right? Let's be hospitable enough to realize maybe not only voices from the margins, but voices from wherever I'm not, <laughs> Right. It doesn't have to be historical margins. It could just be where am I currently ignoring what, what's being said there? And this is not I should take seriously the conspiracy theory. So, Mike, I disagree. Like QAnon. No, if you're going to come with QAnon, I'm out on that view. However, if what you want to talk about is why I am epistemically closed to something I should be receptive to. Well, that's actually really important. So now the onus is let me open myself up to maybe I'm missing something, not about QAnon, right? Because by definition, it's starting by saying, let's ignore evidence, let's ignore rational discourse, let's ignore, you know, engagement. But it may be the case that your belief in QAnon is anchored in something really legitimately compelling, right? I once had a student, for example, who was explicitly racist, which I think is evil and repugnant and horrifying. And in getting to know this student, I discovered that, like, you know, he had family members that had been in the KKK, and he grew up in a space where just to be navigating his family, this was just what was required. That doesn't justify or condone his views, but it does help me understand, oh, I wonder if I might hold those views too, given that embodied set of circumstances, right? And that, again, I'm not open to his racism, <laughs> right? But I'm open to his experiences that have made that view something that he is unable to see as problematic, right? And that's where I think hospitality, we've got to be nuanced about how it gets deployed. Uh, it's not, hey, marketplace of all ideas, they're all equal. No, some ideas don't deserve a hearing, but the people holding them probably do. Right. And that's a distinction, I think, that we've got to do work to try to parse out in a society that says not only ignore their views, but vilify them, because only in doing so are you more part of the us. And, you know, again, it, it's worse than we think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how we go forward. Uh, mountain biking might help some trout fishing. I highly recommend. <laughs> well, thanks so much for that, Aaron. And and thank you all so much for this uh, wonderful conversation, this uh, rich discussion with a lot of nuance. Uh, and I really appreciate that. I hope everyone checks out the new book, QAnon, Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories, published by Airmans. Mike, thanks for putting this uh, book together. And uh, Aaron, Drew and uh, Marlena, Thank you all for your wonderful uh, contributions. So thanks for uh, to all of you for, for your time. Thank yeah. you. It was a pleasure so to be much. here with you all. <laughs>